Here is another instalment of our very popular segment, Alarming Questions from Online Forums. They may feel like a safe haven for first home buyers, but like most forums, they are rarely moderated by industry experts, so they can be a minefield of poor advice. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to move it along and become homeowners. But most importantly, it is for you to become an educated home buyer. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mum. But it's a good thing because between us, we've got over 45 years experience to share with you and bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure you get unbiased and real information you can rely on. Allow us to guide you on your home buying journey. We want you to to become an educated home buyer so that you can stop looking for your first home and actually become a proud homeowner. We've got loads of great tips for you in this episode and if you'd like more useful tools head over to the website homebuyeracademy.com.au and there you'll get access to our free mini course how to price a property like a professional. You will also find the holy grail of home buying education your first home buyer guide the online course for people who want to become educated home buyers. We created this for you to help you get on the right path to home ownership for your first home and beyond. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, we've got the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field who takes the time to understand your personal situation. We've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording. Things change rapidly, so always check with the relevant government authority and your trusted advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today we're talking about alarming questions and some of even more alarming answers that you see in online property forums. You know the ones, they're, they're on the social media platforms, first home buyer areas. Some of them are really great, but you know these are the ones that pique our interest uh, for their either absurdity of question or absurdity of answer. <laughs> yes, but before we get to that, Megan has in the video background behind her looks something looking, I'm not sure if it's, it's stunning. Uh, it's Stunning, it does Veronica. look stunning, but it also looks a little bit photoshopped. It looks a little bit it too is not. perfect. <laughs> it is not. So this home recently sold, so we're talking about uh, late 2023, uh, recently sold for just over $20 million, and it is uh, Sunshine Beach, so absolutely beautiful. It used to be owned by Pat Rafter, who so sold it to the owner of Betty's Burgers, who has just sold it to a mystery purchaser. There Dunning. you go. So that's what, 20 million buys what, you in the Sunshine Coast. Stone, guys, you are on the stepping stone. Heading up up that very, very, very long ladder. <laughs> <laughs> you and I aren't there, Veronica, let's put it out there. No. Well, it does look rather... <laughs> We're I not think, on that step. <laughs> I think I've start working harder somehow. I don't know. What, what's gone wrong? Alrighty. <laughs> So we got to we we love being in the well actually we don't love being in this. We forest. don't necessarily love it, but we are <laughs> interested. We're always interested to hear what first time buyers are asking. What are the things that really challenge them? What are their concerns? And we also want to know what they're hearing as answers because <laughs> you know knowledge is power, but incorrect knowledge can be incredibly detrimental to your first time buying journey. So. We want to get in there. Um, we, we don't mess with the forums. That's not our, our thing. But we do want to perhaps raise some of these questions and give you good answers 
that you can work with. Sometimes we even can't help ourselves. We do leave an answer in the forums, but <laughs> the, the, some of the things that you we see writ- written by other people in answers can be quite horrific. Sometimes there's some good advice in there, but the, I guess the big challenge is how do you work out what's good advice and what's not good advice? Yeah. So that that's where it's really hard. Okay, our first question. You want to hit it, Megan? One of the best ways you have used to negotiate with real estate agents. They use in brackets. They usually want more than asking price. So, you know, the answers you often see uh, when people ask a question such as this, and it's a very broad question as well, because, of course, you need to know, you know, individual circumstances every time you negotiate. We, you know, we put together a strategy every time we negotiate for a property. Mm-hmm. And so, so therefore, to even have these blanket answers is not helpful. I mean, it's like these are some of the scenarios and that you might use. But one of the ones you often see, one of the answers you often see is lowball it. You should always yes. lowball it. <laughs> yeah. Always offer under or add 10% um, yep. as some of the answers that, that I see, which just really alarm me because one, how do you know what it's worth unless you've actually done the work to work out what the property is worth in the current market? Yes. And that's a process. That's mm-hmm. not a that's not a dart thrown at a dartboard. That that is a process that you need to go through to understand what it's worth before you even think about working out how to negotiate with a real estate agent. Yeah. Look, people will often say that, oh, just add ten percent on if if it's a, a price guide, or I'd offer ten five percent less if it's an asking price. And these are flat figures or flat percentages are really like throwing a dart at a dartboard. It's, it's just random, really. It seems really scientific, but it's not. And the reality is, and this is why we have that little free mini course, which is teaches you how to price a property because once you know the value, then you can approach the negotiation uh, differently. Now, if the asking price is right on where you see value, there's not much point offering less because another buyer will probably come along and offer what the price is because it's worth it. But if the asking price is way up, way over, then potentially they're going to get no offers. You know, so in that situation, you might want to lowball it. You know, so there's no hard and fast rule, but learning and understanding the value of the property in the first place—not your wishful thinking value, what you hope you can buy it for—but really by researching and understanding where it sits in the in the current market conditions is absolutely foundational to being able to negotiate with any agent. Yeah, and, and it's just it's not just about having a negotiation strategy. Veronica, you and I have developed over the years a toolkit of different strategies and it's actually the process of having discussions with agents. We teach this in your first home buyer guide, the sorts of questions that you need to ask to get the information that you need to be able to formulate a negotiation strategy that fits that unique situation. So that seller's situation, the agent that you're dealing with and your situation. Also, the the method of sale come comes into it. So there's a, it's such a much bigger picture than just what are some of the best ways to do this. Yeah. Um, some of the other answers I saw in there that again really alarming were um, put your offer in and tell them it's you, you, that's it, no more, you and you have to accept it by four o'clock this afternoon. Now that is a strategy. It is a method of negotiation. But is that going to work in every situation? Absolutely not, because you don't know if that seller is at work until midnight. You don't know if that seller is an elderly person who needs to consult their children. 
you know, there's all of these other circumstances and situations you have to understand before you even think about how you're going to make an offer or do a negotiation. So if you really want to know the best way to negotiate with real estate agents, you need to do our course because that is in module, is it? It's, I'm looking on the wall because that's where I have it, no, module nine. So it's step- I've got to move on so I can see it probably comes. <laughs> There are 10 <laughs> steps in this process, right? And you have to do a lot of work before you get up to the ninth step, which is negotiating with the agent. And if you haven't done those eight steps before then correctly, you are going to negotiate poorly. You are going to get it wrong. So yep. it, there's so much more in, uh, and it seems like, oh, you just need a few tactics, but in reality, there is so much more. So the bigger Remember, question- property is about people, Really? Yeah. Property is just a thing you're purchasing, but the negotiation is about people. There's three parties involved. It's usually the seller, the agent, and yourself. You have a lot to learn in the psychology that sits behind that. Now, let's Huge go on to question two. All right. Shall I do it? We have finally it. purchased our new house. However, Yay. we agreed to let the tenants in it finish their lease. Our real estate agent has just notified us to say that the tenants purchased the blinds that are currently in the house, and they have asked us to pay $500 for them or they will be removed. I completely understand the tenant situation, their desire to make a quick buck, but is this not between the tenant and the current owner? I can't find anything about this in the Section 32. So obviously this is in Victoria. Victoria. Now the interesting thing here is firstly you have to, you're not letting the tenant finish their lease. They have legal, um, they have, have, you're obliged to. It is, if a property is being sold with a lease in place, it's not your choice as to whether they finish the lease or not. It is your legal obligation. So, <laughs> point one. <laughs> okay. Yes. Now, you know, in Queensland, um, if there's an exclusion, so if there's something that belongs to the tenant or the owner who is going to move out, they have something they want to remove, it has to be noted as an exclusion on the contract. Um, if that is not noted on the contract, then, you know, there is a lot more information that I'd want to gather and have a look at the contract and have a look at the um, the sales information and, and how it was marketed and all those sorts of things. But at a very, very base level, if that's in the property and not excluded, then those blinds have to say and stay and therefore it sits with the owner and the tenant to, uh, to reconcile. Sort it out. Yes, they have to sort it out. So really where you go to to get this information is to your conveyance or your lawyer because they're the ones that, you know, hopefully – Hopefully, they went and got some advice before they signed the, the contract, hopefully, and that conveyancer or the lawyer would know the terms and the circumstances of the uh, the purchase, and they will know what the inclusions are. And so, it's like, <laughs> there should be no nasty surprises anyway, you know, because at the time of signing, it should have been clear what was included, what was not included. And blinds are a pretty standard inclusion. Mm-hmm. So if it was... they're su- screwed to the wall. They're physically attached yeah, to the property. If, if they're not included, it would normally be specified as an exclusion. And if, if it's uh, the vendor's issue, then the vendor has to sort that out. It's got nothing to do with the buyer. And so the agent can go and deal with their client. So but once again, go to your lawyer. Don't stick it on a Facebook group. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and make sure that it happens before settlement. So this is not a thing that you can resolve after settlement because once that property settles, it is. Oh uh, yeah, when it, that tenant it is your ex- problem. That's it a very is your good problem. Point. Yeah, um, because once it, when that tenant vacates, they're going to go back to their entry condition report to show that there were no blinds when they moved in, and they have some evidence to say that those 
blinds belong to them if they have receipts or whatever or an email from the managing agent saying, yep, you can put them up. So if that property settles and you haven't resolved this, then yes, it is your problem. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Veronica, here's our next one. Uh, my husband and I have, I'm just going to paraphrase here, <laughs> have pre-approval from the bank. Every time I make an offer, I don't win because someone else makes a higher offer than me. Um, she goes on to say that there's been seven times that she's done this, made offers, and they only have five weeks left in their pre-approval. Starting to feel anxious and stressed. That's completely understandable. Right. Thought that buying a house would be easy, but it's not. It's difficult. Now, the upshot is the pre-approval is about to expire, but their um, borrowing capacity has potentially increased because their incomes have increased. Mm. So now they're thinking of building a house because their borrowing capacity has increased or reapplying for a pre-approval to find an established house and looking for advice from the forum on what to do in this situation. There's she, so many things to unpack here. Also, it gives the example that it seems very unfair when an agent says offers over 430 and then you offer 460 and they, they can't even give you any feedback and then it sells to somebody else. And I'm like, right, this is a person whose head is spinning with panic. They don't know what they're doing and they just, they're just like reeling, right? And many, let's just go to the offers for starters. Then we can talk about the pre-approval and then then the idea of, oh, I'm going to throw it all out and just build, right? So, you know, the first thing is that many buyers make the mistake of adding a nominal amount to the agent's price guide instead of doing their own price research. We said that earlier, the first question, right? It's critical that you do your own comparable sales research and then decide on what you're prepared to pay for the property. And then also ask the agent what their offer process is before you make the offer. So then you're not sort of sitting there going, why didn't they come back to me? It's like, well, did you actually find out whether you even made the offer in the right format? Mm -hmm. (laughs) They might have called for offers in one form and you've given it to them entirely different and they're not even taking you seriously. Like making a verbal, what you think is a verbal offer. Exactly. And what they need is a written offer. Yeah, you're probably not in the running at that point. No, they're just, they're not playing, they're not actually following the rules because they don't know what the rules are. But also another mistake that many buyers make is to assume that all agents follow the same process. Yeah, they don't. To make it more confusing, right? Yeah, what what um, I, I think, yeah, some of the answers that were in the forum for this one were um, sort of focused on giving advice around buying new versus um, buying established, and and certainly that was part of the question. Mm. Um, but the concern that you and I both sort of had in in that space was, you know, we have a home buyer academy principle, and that principle said says if it's easy to buy, it's going to be hard to sell. Now, what that really means is um, these people are in a competitive market, obviously. There, there seems to be multiple offers on properties, which tells you that that's probably still in a rising cycle of the market. Um, and what they're trying to do is exit out of that competitive situation and find something that's easy to buy in a competitive market. Yeah. Now, that is probably one of the, the, the riskiest things that you can do is to find something that's easy to buy, whether it's on main road or it's a new property property because there's so many of them. Yeah. If it's easy to buy in a competitive market, it is going to be so hard to sell and most likely not experience the kind of capital growth that you would get from these properties that are highly sought after. Exactly right. So it is a really common thing that people, when they find it more difficult than they anticipated, they go that easy path. I know that must be the solution. 
And yeah. so it's compelling because it but feels easier. Dangerous. Yes, exactly right. And, you know, immediately you'll feel relief. But after maybe five or 10 years, you, it's going to dawn on you. Oh, um, why, why is my house not going up in value? Um, and the other thing too is rushing to try to buy before a pre-approval. It, you know, there's a lot in this, you know, they, they reckon they can probably get more if yeah. they reapply anyway. So that's a, there's one reason not to rush, but. The reason to talk to your broker too. Well, that too, absolutely. But you sort of got this, also this sense that they've, they are still rushing because they don't want to lose the pre-approval, in which case we know and we've seen it. People have then dived in and bought something wildly inappropriate just, just to sort of give Meet them that frame. immediate rush of, of, um, of relief that can be very, very short-lived. So absolutely, you know, and, I guess rolling on from that, and it isn't part of the question, but of course we do talk about um, trying to fit yourself in to meet a grant. So uh, whilst that's not part of it, we, we probably will talk about that with a different question. Yes. All right. Next question. Do you want to read it? Or do you want me to read it? Lawyer has just come back to us saying it appears two major renovations, carport enclosed, and an extension of a rumpus room may not have been approved by council. We have approved our lawyer, lawyer to retrieve the records from local council. Well done. Good work. But there's no guarantee records will be found. That's not unusual. What will we do if the renovations aren't approved? It's literally like half the house and the extra space is why we are buying it. Anyone been in a similar situation with additions or renovations being legally done on a residence you're looking to purchase? I just but- want to point out, well done going to your lawyer. Well done doing that first. Yes, 100%. And the reality is this is very, very common. And we, we've we had it come up in Campfire a number of times with some yeah. of our students, right? It happens all the time. It happens all the time in my business, probably yours as well. Absolutely. Um, and you have to be very careful because as these people say, the extra space is why they're buying it. And yet the risk, at worst case scenario, is that council at some stage may order a removal of unauthorised structures. Perfect. So when we've had this happen with with clients in our buyers agency business, you know we have to be assured that the risk is not great and that we have discounted the price, so we're effectively not paying for the unapproved works. So we price a property as if they're not there, which is yep. a bit hard if it's half the house. <laughs> yeah, you know that's true. <laughs> Another thing though, you can call a duty planner at the local council and you can see what they will tell you. You could also pay a town planner for a consultation. Um, but it's really, really important to know how that big that risk is and also um, what you could do to rectify it if you did end up buying the property. But also the fact is that sometimes those council records take 21 days to um, be released and in that time, the agent could be putting a hell of a lot of pressure on you to, to complete the deal and just go ahead anyway. Yeah, so some of the risks, you know, you talked about, Veronica, um, you mentioned some of the risks and, and, and some of the risks are... Um, if you purchase something like this, it may not be insurable. If there is an event that's caused um, like an electrical fault in one of those unapproved structures, your entire structure may not be insurable. So you might be paying insurance on a whole thing that you actually haven't got insurance on because of a defect in an unapproved structure. Um, Council could issue a show cause notice, as Veronica mentioned, uh, and that may lead to you having to to pull it down. Now, one of the things that you can do is talk to a certifier. And in some cases, if something has been built to code, so 
yes, there's a lot of unimproved structures, but some of them have been built reasonably well. Um, and if you can get a builder and or a certifier in your time frame, in your, your conditional time frame or pre-purchase time frame, to have a look and see if retrospective certification is possible and how much that would cost, um, that means it may not be a showstopper. It may not be a reason not to buy that property if you're paying the right price as Veronica said, for that addition not existing, as if it didn't exist, and the cost to do the retrospective certification and that it is able to be certified retrospectively um, still comes in within what that property would be worth if it had those structures as approved. It's a, a lot of ifs, and often you don't have the luxury of time to solve them. And so, you know, I think that um, the other thing that I would say too is that in a slower market, we always talk about what's hard to buy, what's easy to buy, and and buying a property that at, in the future at some point of time you need to upgrade, downsize, sell it for whatever reason. You want to be able to sell it and get the best possible price, attract the most buyers, and not be at the total mercy of market conditions. So if you buy a property that has unapproved works, let me tell you, in a seller's market, that's when buyers are at a disadvantage, right? Buyers will overlook stuff. But in a buyer's market, these things can become absolute showstoppers and you can get yeah. stuck with it. So so you just have to be very, very aware of that. All right, our next question. Good advice. Your turn. All right. If you are a husband and wife or husband and husband and wife and wife, I'm going to put it out there, both on a pre-approved loan, can you contact real estate separately and put two different offers and hope for the best? The house doesn't have an exact figure and it's hard to know how much the owner wants and how much others have offered. It's in the 400s. <laughs> you should have seen some of these answers, Veronica. Honestly, honestly, if if they went ahead and did what some of the, the uh, responses suggested, they would have been in deep, deep trouble. Buying two houses. I mean, they would yeah. have bought. Well, not only that. Okay, so let's let's break it down. If you're putting an offer in, you have to state who the purchasers of the property are. Now, if you put an offer in, let's say in Queensland, you put an offer in writing, you have to put all the purchase full names on that contract, that offer contract. So if you're going to put two in, you're going to put one in one name and one in the other, but you both want to be on the contract, you could be up for two lots of stamp duty to change the purchasing entity. <laughs> Twice, right? So some of the advice was, yeah, yeah, just uh, make sure that before, you know, just before settlement, you get the other name put on. It is not that simple. You actually have to rescind the contract, create a new contract, and the office state revenue could actually ping you for a second sale. Now, and this is where we often talk about how different things are state by state. New South Wales, that can't happen, mm -hmm. right? But, but another flip side of this is that if you've got two people making different offers, the agent's going to think they've got more interest than they really have. What happens when the agent and the owner thinks they've got more interest than they really have? Well, they, their price expectations go up. You know, if you're trying to manage the expectations of the owner or of the, the agent of both and you're pretending there are two different buyers when there's really only one, I mean, like, you just... I mean, you could play that game, but it might backfire. Yeah, yeah, really backfire. The other part of the question, we're going back to what we've talked about with the last two questions, was the house doesn't have an exact figure, so it's hard to know how much the owner wants and how much the others have offered. Do your price research, yeah. right, buddy? 
Don't Make worry about <laughs> anything else. Do your price research. Do it properly. Download the course. It's free. Work out what the property is worth. Put an offer in that's supported by the evidence that you've gathered during that process of working out how to price the property. Yep. And then it doesn't matter what you think others may or may not have offered. It, it comes down to value. You know, um, that free course, if you want the the uh, the link, it's homebuyeracademy.com.au forward slash free course. Okay. So Bright you forward. can get our free little right. mini course. We keep mentioning this because in reality, it's that's another reason why it's so frustrating. You're on other people's forums. You can't be, you can't be <laughs> posting our free course. course in there. But it <laughs> would solve a lot of these questions, I tell you. All right. We've got another question. This is an interesting one. Yeah. It is. We need advice for our buying regrets. Um, and it's just so common to have buyer's remorse. Um, but in this case, I, I'm I'm really feeling for them. Bought vacant land with the intention of building our first home in Victoria. We'll be settling the first quarter of 2024. Unfortunately, family events have forced us to move to Perth. Spoke with our solicitor and she said the developer has refused to cancel the contract. We are so confused about what to do with this vacant land. Two scenarios they're asking for advice around. Firstly, if we sell it after settlement, we'll lose money because the land value did not increase. And here is a major problem. Let's just pop that down on the whiteboard. Um, There are other estates in our area, so there's oversupply. Second, if we build a rental house, we'll pay stamp duty as we are considered as investors, plus the exorbitant repayments because of the higher interest rates. We calculated this rental house would be negatively geared because the rental prices in Victoria have remained the same for the last two years. Which is actually not true. The rest of the country. <laughs> anyway, that's <laughs> not even true, but anyway. <laughs> we are hopeless and helpless. Any advice is highly appreciated. This is such a big financial planning question that to ask uninformed, uneducated, but very, very, very well-meaning other first-home buyers is a burden that I, I, I think is unfair. You know, I actually did Although respond plenty to... Although there plenty of plenty of answers, mind you. Yeah, heaps of them. And I did respond to this one because I thought, look, you know, I sort of said I'm a buyer's agent, a property educator, so I do speak from a place of knowledge as opposed to <laughs> everyone else making comments here. Um, you know, there's a lot of pit, there's a, there's a thing called sunk cost, right, bias, and that is that you've already spent this money and so therefore you you sort of got to make it work for you in some way. Yeah. The, the reality yeah. is that sometimes you have to cut your losses. And what I had suggested in there is that I encourage them to calculate the potential loss that they would incur from selling upon settlement versus the potential bigger losses of committing to a build in an area of oversupply which means that the land hasn't gone up in value since they bought it, then the house won't be going up the in value either. The house won't be going up in value. Um, and the opportunity cost of having your capital and borrowing capacity tied up and not being able to buy a home when they move. Now, it, this is what I call a shit sandwich, right? You're going to have a shit sandwich, you choose white bread or brown bread, right? <laughs> either way, it's a shit sandwich. <laughs> now, you, I would go with the brown bread shit sandwich, to be quite frank, because either way, it's painful, right? But facing up to it and taking the least painful path that allows them to get back on with their life uh-huh. is the best plan of attack. There's no avoiding it. Once they're in that situation, it's about getting out with the least collateral damage. Yeah. And look, this doesn't just happen to first-time buyers. It can happen to investors. It can happen to fifth-time buyers. If you make a mistake, it is as brave 
and as important to unravel that mistake so that you can actually move forward rather than continuing to hold on to that mistake, hoping and hoping and hoping that the market will eventually give you some sort of feeling of success or achievement. Mm -hmm. It is better if it's not a good asset and it's not going to serve you in the way that you originally intended, which this was going to be their home, they were going to live in it. Circumstances have changed. Therefore, their their view of what the decision that they made needs to, to change and it needs to be the decision that helps these people move forward in whatever direction is right for them. And that is a big picture financial planning question. But the analysis of the individual property is something that you need to do to make sure you understand the pros and cons of each direction. Yeah. Our next question. Hi, everyone. We made an offer on a house. We had a building inspection yesterday and found out there's soil displacement under some of the house slab, which means there's a void under the slab and about six metres by two metres of the house slab is actually floating essentially and not sitting on compact ground. Does anyone have any advice? That's a big question to ask in a forum. I know because they've had a building inspection. Like the obvious is go back and talk to the building inspector. There's a there's a professional in place that they've paid to give them advice. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you not want to take that advice is, is like the first thing. And I mean, I would say, oh, okay, Mr. Presumably Mr. Building Inspector, because most of them are men, but most there's the odd are. woman. But, yeah. you know, excuse me, Mr. Building Inspector, would you let your kids buy this house? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, it's one that we ask all the time because hand on heart, a building inspector, and often building inspectors are, are like retired builders um, or they've, they've come out of the industry. So they've been hands-on, they've come out of the industry um, to, to do the inspections. And it is such a powerful questions, question to ask, would you let your daughter buy this property? And some of the time they say, oh, God, yeah, it's great. All you need to do is. Mm. But it's the all you need to do is question that is just as important. You'll find out what needs to be done. Is there a way to rectify this? Will it be then structurally sound and how much will it cost? Yeah. So armed with that information, you can start to make some good decisions based on factual information, <laughs> not uh, forum Panic. For, or asking a forum <laughs> after you've forum. paid an expert. Expert, <laughs> ask the expert. <laughs> and then talk to your solicitor about whether you can require the vendor to rectify and what and to what standard, you know. Or talk to the agent about renegotiating the price. But if the, it is too risky or there are too many unknowns, get the hell out of there. Yeah, run. Yep. That <laughs> inspector goes, I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Get the hell then out of there. Just grab that barge pole and run. Don't go on a forum and ask other people who don't know anything. Yeah, some of the questions were, um, well, the if comments. the slab is something like if the slab is suspended and it's not falling down, it should be okay. I oh, know. Just go. No, just no. Th- that is no. How do you know that? It just. What was that based on? <laughs> Are you a structural What's... engineer? <laughs> We're really fortunate. Uh, in yeah. in Campfire, we had a student who actually was an engineer, yes. and she was great in giving just another perspective. Um, when some of our, our students had um, questions, which of course then we sent the students back to the professionals, but it was good. I think to, you know, have that different perspective. But anyway, people in the forum were not structural engineers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. We've um, got our final question that from a forum. 
uh, which is about to buy an apartment off the plan. There's an emoji with two hearts in the eyes. I don't know what the name of that emoji is, but I was like, oh, that looks a bit We're too not enthusiastic the for me. We're not feeling the loan. When do I need to pay the deposit? If I pay a small fee, will they let me pay the 30%? Even then, I was like, when? 30%, right. Okay. Within 30 days. What happens when the apartment is complete and I can't get finance? In oh. brackets, worst case scenario, do I lose a deposit? And I'm like, oh, oh God, just where do we cry. start? I, look, I did answer this one. I just said, that's not the only poor outcome that can come from buying off the plan. Make sure you <laughs> use a lawyer that does a lot of off the plan purchases and reference the podcast. I did actually post it. Um, you know, I said, this, we have got a podcast episode which goes through 10 things and go wrong when buying off the plan. So you need to, that's just 10. Well, we could probably write about probably more a lot than more. 10, but there are 10 big common risks of buying off the plan, right? Now, not everyone has a terrible situation. Not everyone has a terrible outcome, but the outcomes for people buying off the plan are more in more cases than they are for buying existing stock. So Let's go back to these first couple of questions because I want to hit these. Number one, when do I need to pay the deposit? Asking a forum is not going to give you an answer to that question because where do you find the answer to that question? On the contract. <laughs> it's it's contractual. It's not an option. The developer will have spent an extraordinary amount of money with solicitors who are highly experienced to draw up contracts, which usually can't be changed. They're not, to, in, fa not in the favour of buyers. They're not in the favour of the buyer. <laughs> but they're going to tell you, if you want to buy this, here's when you pay the deposit. Here's when you this pay is your how money. much it's going to be. And this is how much you are locked in. So, one, don't ask a forum when you need to pay the deposit because <laughs> the developer has chosen that and it's on the contract. If I pay a small <laughs> fee, we're going to have to say pay. one more thing, though. Yeah. If you're asking the forum, you dick around. <laughs> asking the wrong people for advice, which is one key thing that lots of first-time buyers get wrong, then in that time, somebody else who knows, who probably has gone in and paid the deposit and taken it off the market. <laughs> but then if I pay a small fee, would they let me pay the 30% within 30 days? Where'd the 30% come from? And I don't know the what the deposit fee? is. Where'd the small fee come from? And what do you mean? Who's putting 30% up front for an off-plan? Please do not do that. No. Please don't. 10 10, 10 is the maximum. And depending on what state it is, if you pay more than 10% deposit, you may uh, end up with an instalment contract, which is a completely different contractual relationship than normal house and sale. So, I, no, it's like, just we're bigger. not even going to answer this because the, 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 the questions, questions are wrong. Are wrong. The questions yeah. are wrong to start with. But the people that need to, you need a contract to talk to a solicitor about these sorts yeah. of things. So, look, it's a Let's very good example. Let's go on to the example. next question, Veronica. No, that's it. That's the last one. No, 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 The second part of this question. What happens oh. when the apartment is complete <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> and I can't get finance, worst case scenario, do I lose the deposit? No, worse than that. Oh, my God. Worse so, than that. Read the contract. Yes. And and let's explain what worse than that means. Worse than losing your deposit, right? And and not only that, she's paid or he's paid 30% when they could have paid 10 <laughs> They've already given away more money. Um <laughs> Is that so? What happens, right? You can't settle on a property that you've committed to purchasing, right? So if you can't get your finance, or whatever. So for, for, this is one of the big risks of buying off the plan, uh -huh. actually, in that 
you know, if you do get a pre-approval, they last for three months. Well, most buildings take more than three months to complete. Yep. And so therefore, you don't know what the circumstances are going to be like down the track when that building is finally complete. Like yeah. the banks could change policy, interest rates could go up, your bond rates. capacity well, that's could go down. people in two years. All sorts of things could go wrong. Um, property values can fall in that time, and that often happens, um, to the point that the valuation comes in and it's less than you've agreed to pay. And so then you, you're left the bank won't lend you as much money. There's lots of things that can go wrong when you're buying off the plan. So we, we as I said, we got that episode with ten things. Um, I think those things are just I've just added to the ten. So so, <laughs> a second but episode. if you get to the point, let's just forget the thirty percent. Let's just say they paid ten percent. If you get to the point of uh, settling on the property and you cannot get that finance, well, yes, say goodbye to the ten percent. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the developer might come back to you and say, oh, well, you can't afford the three-bedroom that you just made a deposit on or two-bedroom you, you put the deposit on. We've got this, you know, shitty one-bedroom at the back of the block that faces the, the garbage room and, you know, it, it's the the one we couldn't sell basically. We'll help you out of your dilemma so you don't lose your 10% deposit. If you want, you can buy that. But it's not only the 10% deposit, Veronica. I've just got to back up a little bit here. In some Hang contracts... On. I haven't got to the point as if they totally that they get out of it. I'm just saying that sometimes a developer will offer what looks like a lifeline, which is really just um, what's the opposite of life? Really, a sinker. They're offering you, they're giving you a death chart, throwing you an anvil. See so that's right, exactly. They haven't, blown, they haven't blown, thrown you the life, the life ring. They've thrown you the anvil, and that is where you. Okay, you don't lose your ten percent, but they'll let you buy the crappiest apartment, smaller than you need in the apart in the in the complex. And people think, oh, thank God, I didn't lose my deposit. Um, but another really poor outcome is if you can't complete, they sell it to somebody else for less money, and then they sue you for the difference. So you lose your deposit plus the difference between what you agreed to pay and what they ultimately did pay, and that has happened and does happen mm-hmm. and can happen. Yep, absolutely. So it's it's not just a matter of losing a deposit. You actually can end up going through a legal process where the developer can either force a settlement and you've got to work out how to get that money and if you can't um, and they have to remarket, they can potentially, depending on how the contract's written, again, get legal advice on this one, but they can uh, go you for remarketing costs. Um, the agent will be, if there's an agent or or marketer involved, they will be entitled to two lots of commission. So they can go you for that. Uh, and any difference in the sale price from what you paid to what they actually get on resale. So it can be, and if they can't sell that, then you need to stump up somehow. So big, big risk. As Veronica said, your borrowing capacity. So I know of people whose borrowing capacity has gone down 30% since interest rates started going up. So if you committed to an off-plan purchase um, back in late 2020 and that didn't settle for two years, which is not an unreasonable time frame for a large apartment complex, borrowing capacity could have gone down by way more than what that property is worth today. So you might have negative equity and an inability to, to get the money to settle it. Yes, we are not fans of buying off the plan in case you hadn't noticed. The risks are huge. Yes, particularly for first home buyers. You know, you've worked so hard to get your deposit together. Um, to risk it all uh, is is awful. All right, a quick note. 
this course that's your first home buyer guide only costs nine hundred ninety dollars and you can get direct access to us to help guide you through your negotiations and through your decision making every week in campfire right now we've just answered some questions here and some of these are questions that people similar to questions that are brought to us in campfire every week and we we help our students to answer them so that you go forward and buy with a hell of a lot more confidence and being a hell of a lot more educated Trust me, you will over overpay by so much more than $1,000 if you don't know what you're doing. In this episode, we've only touched on a tiny part of the huge amount of things you need to know to become an educated first-home buyer. There is so much more for you to do. You can learn all of the steps in the right order and avoid all of the mistakes that others have made in our 10-step online course for first-home buyers. If you'd like to learn more about the right process and avoid making rookie errors, become an educated home buyer. Head over to the website, check out your first home buyer guide, the course that we have created for you. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you've liked what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. It helps other people find us. And of course, I know it's a bit cringy, but we're going to ask for five stars. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with more priceless stuff.